0: If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things distance and forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the all new Stealth
1: 2 with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. Wait, did you say forgiveness like far or forgiveness like forgiveness? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I'm hearing far. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Exactly. Rory gets it. The all new TaylorMade Stealth 2. Learn more at tailormadegolf.com.
2: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. June is Pride Month. We'll look to get an understanding of it from a distinctly Christian perspective.
3: This is a powerful lobbying group. They've been able to change the language of our whole culture. Of course, we don't assign children a sex. We simply recognize it when they're born.
2: We'll get analysis from
4: Albert Moeller. Once you have momentum gaining for this kind of massive social movement, it becomes something that basically takes on a life of its own.
2: And we'll hear from Jay
5: Richards on this gender revolution think of it as a confluence of all the worst ideas of the 19th and 20th century and technology that allows it to be amplified and magnified around the world.
2: We have all this and more. I'm Don Crowe. Great to be with you again. You can catch my program each day here in the Beltway at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn Radio app. And take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. On May 31st, President Biden issued a formal proclamation on lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex Pride Month. He traces the origins of what is today a full month of celebration as they, in the words of the proclamation, honor a movement that has grown stronger, more vibrant, and more inclusive with every passing year. There is little question of the fact that this movement has grown stronger. We'll begin today with what I hope is a helpful look at how to sort through all of it from a distinctly Christian perspective. We'll start with Jeff Johnston of Focus on the Family. He joined my colleague in Los Angeles, Scott Furrow, host of the Pastor Scott Show on KKLA in Los Angeles.
6: You know, one of the things I think maybe we're just, we just need to really understand how powerful this movement is, and maybe I should say even the the lobby is. You wrote about how On one hand, this group of people is very oppressed and in in all kinds of crisis. On the other hand, they're moving corporations to change their entire merchandising and marketing. And they've even changed language, the language that amazes me. Some of it, this whole idea of um, the idea that you're assigned a gender at birth, that a doctor looks at you and assigns you a gender, but they don't really know. And that's new. That's new in all of human history.
3: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. First of all, this is a group that claims to be a victim class. And I I want to be careful here. Many individuals have been victimized. And many who struggle with these issues have been harmed. But as a group, this is a powerful lobbying group. And I I wrote recently about the Human Rights Campaign, and they have 842 large corporations who get 100% score from them meaning that they are fully on board with all these LGBT issues. And as far as language, yes, they've been able to change the language of our whole culture. Of course, we don't assign children a sex. We simply recognize it when they're born and Mm. you say, hey, that's a girl or that's a boy. Um, That's not a sign. That's who they are. And that's where where language has changed as well and where it's coming into the church. Um, Throughout human history and throughout the Bible, there was no such thing as somebody who was a homosexual as if that was their core being. Instead, the Bible talks about people who have lust or they do different things, and the Bible talks about men and women who do different things. It doesn't label people this. But more recently, I've seen this creeping into the church where even a Christian who says, yeah, I'm holding to the biblical sexual ethic, but I'm a gay Christian. They're taking on board an identity that is not what God intended. And and I remember one of the first times I really thought about this um, was here at Folks on the Family. We had a gay-identified activist come in, and he was talking to us. And I just had this kind of epiphany. I realized he views the whole world as gay or straight. I view the whole world as male or female. And that male or female view is really a biblical view. Um, Gay isn't a person's core identity. But that's what kids are being taught in school and through advertising and through entertainment and through social media, that your feelings or your attractions or your thoughts, that's who you really are. Well, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture said God made us male and female, and he gives us our identity And especially if we're his children, that's who we are. We're his sons or daughters.
6: How do we help our our kids also who are going now to school with, with kids who are either transitioning or thinking about it or on board with this kind of thing? How do we stay compassionate without sacrificing the truth? And how do we teach that?
3: Well, your kids are watching you, that's for sure. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they know, they, they know <laughs> whether or not you really care about these people. And, and there's a difference when you're dealing with the person versus dealing with the issue and how it's um, spreading in the political arena. Um, mm-hmm. In the political and cultural arena, I suggest that people lead with truth, but we also do that kindly and wisely. You know, there's some language that's just not helpful. But when we're dealing with individuals, um, we want to lead with love. It doesn't mean we hold back on the truth, but um, we want to use the truth wisely as well. But people need to know that they're loved and respected by us as believers. I remember about um, 12 years ago, our president, Jim Daly was talking to us, and he said, how many of you pray for, and he mentioned a specific um, gay-identified man. And I thought, wow, I don't pray for him. And so I I just started a little list of people that i pray for, and then I would meet people who had family members, and I asked God to give me a heart of love and compassion for these people, and I also asked them to work in their lives to bring change, and I was thinking about this recently. A lot of times I'm reading on social media, and people see the pride flag, and they get mad, or they're offended. And I thought, what if Christians use the pride flag as a reminder to pray for people? Think about all the millions of Christians in this country. Every time they saw a pride flag, saying, God, have mercy. Bring these people out of sin because it's harmful and damaging. And bring them into your light and into your love.
2: USA Today, in just one edition of their newspaper, had four articles celebrating in one way or another Pride Month. Albert Moeller took a closer look in his briefing podcast. We'll pick up with Dr. Moeller as he focuses on one of those pieces that points to Christian parents as the cause of LGBTQ homelessness.
4: Once you have momentum gaining for this kind of massive social movement, It becomes something that basically takes on a life of its own, and that's what's taking place right now in terms of the revolution in sexual morality around us. You have numbers that simply don't add up to that many people being identified as LGBTQ, and again, we're going to end on that in just a moment, but nonetheless, you have the cultural pressure coming with the insistence that this is the most important issue. You and your law firm better get behind. You and your campus have better get behind. You and your corporation have better get behind. And the big threat that is held out to so many of these organizations is that they will be found behind the times, behind the new moral curve. The final statement in this article is a quote from one official who said, Quote, if you have economic power, you can have influence on policy, end quote. That's the point. And trust me, the activist community understands that point? Full well. But the most significant article to appear is the one with the headline Homeless LGBTQ Youths Face Hostility from Their Parents. Claire Thornton is the reporter here. This is an article that originates in USA Today and was published online and in the print edition. The point here is that this article argues that, in the main, parents here are the problem. The moral situation is set up. So that if parents are not entirely affirming of LGBTQ identity, relationships, behaviors on the part of their children, then they are the problem. Now, remember, the first word in the headline had to do with homeless LGBTQ use, And the accusation here is that an unwillingness of parents to affirm LGBTQ identity, behavior, relationships is what has led to the homelessness. No doubt there are a lot of complicated issues here. And no doubt, homelessness on the part of LGBTQ youth or anyone else is a big problem. No doubt, this does increase the likelihood that many young people are going to become the victims of sex trafficking and other kinds of immoral activities, even criminal networks. But the point here is that parents are identified as the problem. And there's actually a bottom line argument that is made here when we read a statement by Josh Egland identified as program manager of David's Place, quote, LGBTQ plus youth primarily experience homelessness due to family rejection. We know that that's the primary theme. But then follows this paragraph, and this really changes the moral context. Listen, quote, even if parents don't literally kick their LGBTQ child to the curb, homophobic and transphobic treatment from parents is traumatic and causes many youth to flee. end quote. So you'll notice how the moral situation is now here fundamentally changed. it's not we're told so much that parents are kicking their LGBTQ children out and putting them on the street. It is in that failing to affirm them totally with many of the children then leaving on their own. It's all the parents' fault. The very next section of the article, I kid you not, comes with this hubhead: quote, Religious beliefs can influence rejection. So the problem is twofold, we're told. The problem is parents, and it's the religious beliefs of these parents. Quote, Clients often attribute their parents' homophobia or transphobia to religious beliefs, said Kate Barnhart, founder of New Alternatives, a drop-in for homeless queer youths in Manhattan. End quote. Barnhart went on to say, quote, If I have a young person in my office who's new and talking about being rejected by their family, I can say, Is your family very religious? And they're almost always like, Yes, Barnhart said. End quote. I'm not going to look further at the article, although the article takes up a full half page in the print edition of yesterday's USA Today. I simply want to make the point the messaging here is not subtle. The messaging here is that if parents don't get with the moral sexual revolution, they don't get with the LGBTQ plus, don't forget the plus sign, revolution, they don't get to the point of eager affirmation of whatever sexual identity or gender identity claim their offspring may make. And if of all things, their convictions are driven by religious beliefs, then they're going to have to be dealt with. But one final thought here is that This also comes down not only to a war against religious conviction, and let's face it, that means in the main Christian conviction, it also comes down to a war of statistics. And one of the things we need to look at is that many of these statistics are just wildly off from any kind of objective and accurate count. Just to give you one example, and they're not talking about this in the activist community in Pride Month. The Census Bureau's released statistics on 2020. The Wall Street Journal headline was this, quote, same-sex couples accounted for 1% of households in 2020. Let's just say they're not getting 1% of the attention, of the media celebration, or for that matter, of the political demands.
2: Coming up, the pace of change on gender
5: ideology is changing quickly. Think of it as a confluence of all the worst ideas of the 19th and 20th century and technology that allows it to be amplified and magnified around the world.
2: Jay Richards, when the Christian Outlook continues in a moment.
1: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
2: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. For over five decades now, we have talked about the free love movement that began in the late 1960s as the sexual revolution. But that word, revolution, seems more fitting for what we're looking at today. I'm not alone, I'm sure, in being astounded at the sheer pace of change we're seeing in this revolution on sex and gender. I turn to Jay Richards, serving now with the Heritage Foundation and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Where are the deep roots of this that has brought us to this kind of radical upending of our culture and reversing of all norms and common sense?
5: Well, and it's funny because one of my older colleagues here who's in the Reagan administration asked me, asked me the same question this morning. He said, I've never seen anything overtake a culture like gender ideology has, what's happened? And I'd say several things. First of all, as you said, it didn't happen in a moment. I compare it with a phase change. It's like the temperature going down outside. And when it's 35, 34 degrees, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, you're looking at a lake and nothing happens. And then it hits 32 degrees and suddenly ice forms, right? It looks like it's happened just Mm -hmm. in a moment, but it's a phase change, which Mm -hmm. suddenly for physical reasons, water, liquid water turns to ice. And that's what's happened here. These ideas of gender ideology have been working their way through our institutions and culture for decades. I mean, you could trace just the sexual revolution, which started by separating marriage and sex and childbearing. And then in 2015, the Supreme Court said, well, marriage doesn't really have anything to do with the complementary nature of male and female. And the minute that happened, suddenly... Uh, the forces on the other side said, "Oh, actually, the very idea of male and female really doesn't make sense. So you can trace it that way. You can trace it intellectually. Uh, gender ideology is a combination of what's called critical theory and cultural Marxism and postmodernism. But really, in its essence, what it says is that what people really are is this internal thing called a gender identity that's independent of their bodies. So that if you have a gender identity that's contrary to your body, the way to fix it." Not to adjust your mind to bodily reality, but to change the body to conform to this, sort of this, this mental picture. This is a very powerful and toxic ideology, but you can think of it intellectually. You can also think of it in terms of technology, because in great intellectual revolutions – for good or ill, almost always happened because of ch- technological change. First of all, you've got to have the drugs and the surgeries. We didn't, used to, we mm-hmm. didn't have synthetic mm-hmm. testosterone, so you couldn't give that to girls as a cross-sex hormone. We didn't even have uh, you know, surgical uh, efforts to be able to even create facsimiles of people that have the opposite sex. And then we didn't have the communications technology that allows these ideas to be transmitted at roughly the speed of light to a third of the human population over the Internet and network technology. So it's really think of it as a confluence of all the worst ideas of the 19th and 20th century and technology that allows it to be amplified and magnified around the world. That's why it seems so fast. Wow.
2: And of course, uh, it's one thing when the supposedly hallowed halls of academia are embracing this and uh, teaching it, Uh, in subterfuge in a way for many years uh, below the radar, so to speak, Uh, and then to have a president of the United States actually embrace it in toto and say that this is the way we must go as a nation. How do we get from that to to from those hallowed halls, if you will, to an actual elected official in the top uh, office of the land supporting this sort of thing?
5: Well, what you have is this is what happens when the the radical ideologues in a political coalition get the upper hand. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that Joe Biden has not spent more than five minutes in his life thinking about the details of gender ideology. He probably didn't even have an opinion on it five years ago. But the reality is, um, you know, in some ways, he's sort of asleep at the wheel. Everybody in Washington, D.C. knows this. And we know that the ideologues that were committed to gender ideology basically got to write the script. So that mm-hmm. literally within a week of President Biden being sworn in as president, he had also already issued an agenda telling all the federal agencies that essentially they had a year to show how they were going to implement gender ideology in their programs. And since then, they've actually done annual reviews. So you think of the five most radical people on this suddenly getting to write the script for the federal government. That's basically what's happened. And I, I suspect that very few people that actually voted for Joe Biden for president had any idea that that's what they were voting for, but that's what they're getting.
2: And then there, of course, is the private sector side. And as you open the column, you cite uh, the uh, very. Uh, Always on offense, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. And early on, we know what uh, uh, the confrontation that occurred between him and Disney and ongoing still. Uh, But I guess what I'm after there is how is it that the body politic itself has come to largely endorse this or at least consider it as a rational possibility? Uh, And maybe I'm overstating the case. Maybe it's not that widespread as it seems in the general culture.
5: Well, I mean, the reality is that if you I just saw a poll that was released today that something that about three to one Americans, when they're asked, OK, how many sexes do you think there are, think that there are men and women. And that's it. Uh, three to one. Don't think it's a good idea to be doing transition surgery and giving transition drugs to kids. But it seems like the culture is just completely awash in this, and that's because the commanding heights of culture, the institutions that have influence, they've all been captured. And so, as you mentioned briefly, uh, corporations, for the most part, have been captured, Uh, and that's not because they necessarily want to. It's not like the managers and the CEOs of these companies want to do this stuff, but they're worried about getting dinged because of BlackRock and Vanguard, large financial institutions that actually uh, basically have a checklist to see how – uh, consistent companies are with this stuff. That's what happened to Anheuser-Busch. They weren't thinking, how do we destroy our customer base for Bud Light? That wasn't what was in their head. They said, how do we get a 100% score from the radical human rights campaign, which is watching us on this stuff? And so that's, that's what's kind of happening in the corporate world behind the scenes, is a worry about offending, not, you know, of their customer base, uh, but worried about these large financial institutions and nonprofits that are grading this stuff.
2: Talk, if you would, also, Jay, about the profound, uh, really, aftermath, I think, of the Old Testament scripture, you have sown Mm -hmm. the wind, you reap the whirlwind. I mean, there are families and individuals, we've interviewed at least one or two on this show, who have profound regret that uh, some of the procedures with which, uh, in which or uh, to which they subjected themselves, uh, are, are irreversible, and they have to live with the consequences. Uh, how how much of that is surfacing as well?
5: Well, it's emerging. Of course, this is the young people that are, go by the label detransition, or these are usually kids that, or at least as kids, went through these procedures. Uh, in many cases, they may have even had surgical interventions. In the case of girls, double mastectomies, for instance, and then realize they've been, uh, been fooled. They've uh, made a terrible mistake. Uh, but it's, it's heart-wrenching, on the one hand, it's also what makes this issue different from issues like abortion. If you think about abortion, the primary victim of abortion uh, isn't around, because you kill the unborn baby. Uh, In this case, Detransitioners are still around and it may take them five or 10 years to regret this, but they get angry and they want to do something. And so that's why I thought for a long time that these pediatric gender clinics, they're actually going to collapse just simply under the weight of the class action lawsuits against them. But so what we don't want to have happen is have to wait 10 years for that to happen, because I can only imagine how many victims uh, could result from that. I do think that's how it ends. Uh, But we want to put a stop to it. But I'm I'm actually optimistic that we're going to be able to put a stop to the medicine. The trick is going to be to get enough of the American people to realize, okay, what is the crazy ideology that led us to attacking children's bodies and minds? That's the kind of cultural question that I think we're going to have to ask and answer if we want to recover from this. Coming up, does the school respect
7: the Judeo-Christian tradition? Does it value
5: civilization's most
1: important book, the Bible?
2: Sorting through the choice of a college when the Christian Outlook
1: returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes. She will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
2: Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crowe. I think Jay Richards in our last segment captured well the pace of change we're seeing in our nation today. And yet, these are the days and times that God, in His sovereignty, has put us. We're called to navigate the days with wisdom. That challenge is particularly acute for high school graduates looking at a choice for college. Donald Sweeting is chancellor of Colorado Christian University. I talked to him about his recent piece for The Washington Times. Now, you open the column by saying, forget reputation and prestige, which I know has driven a lot of families and wannabe enrollees for many decades. Why do you say that?
7: Well, I say it because employers are starting to say this about a lot of Ivy League schools uh, where they have the reputation, but they're not getting a good education because the traditional subjects are undermined by all kinds of ideologies. And so they, they come away not knowing basic things.
2: You also say, pick a school that values debate, encourages people to think as opposed to obsessive, coddling, worrying about safe spaces, trigger warnings. In fact, we have all new words in our lexicon Uh, in recent years. Snowflakes is one that became quite popular for a while. And as you say, safe spaces. Uh, How did this develop on the college campuses and do so so rapidly? Where did this come from?
7: Well, I mean, mean, the sad thing is debates dying on campuses, which is is just Tragic, and it's because they don't believe in reason, and and if you don't believe in truth, and then reason sort of goes out the window if everything's relative, and and so reason is looked at as a kind of a white oppressive tool, um, as is excellence, by the way, uh, as is um, I mean so many other things, the Constitution, and you know free markets, and, and and all the rest. So they want you to assert things rather than to debate things. But if you're doing debate, you teach people to listen respectfully and to weigh things and to have civil dialogue. We're losing that
2: critical theory for folks who don't know. And I imagine there aren't very many who don't know what it means. Uh, It's a popular phrase. But how has it affected our universities and college campuses? And why should it really be one of those touch points that folks check about to see what the colleges and universities uh, position is on these things?
7: Right. Well, critical theory is the broad category it can be applied to race or gender or any number of things, and and it really uh, is is um, kind of a, a neo-Marxist worldview that says, look, there are oppressors and there are the oppressed, and you fit into one of two two categories, and and so everything is is locked into that that grid. But what it ends up doing is it corrupts the humanity so that you know you rather than appreciate the humanities, you deconstruct them and you try to find out what's the power relationship and and it's all about it's all about power. And of course, why are the humanities dying? Because we've corrupted them with with uh, t- tools like critical theory, as opposed to use them to teach about human nature, the, 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 our proclivity to evil or good, and uh, the best of what's been done and written in the past. So uh, there are a lot of schools that. There are schools, I wish there were a lot, there are schools that still teach the humanities without a critical theory grid. And that's where the humanities are going to elevate you and and ennoble you.
2: Did you ever think as an educator all these years that we would ever, as a culture or as a, in the world of academia, ever come to the point where we actually seriously discussed and uh, tried to define what a woman or a man is?
7: No, I ne- I never did. I mean, I I couldn't imagine that we'd go down this very dark road of trying to deconstruct everything and turn everything inside out. Uh, but you know, that's another thing I have on my list. Uh, uh, do you have a? I mean, does is masculinity and femininity affirmed? Are we undermining women's sports with the with transgender nonsense in terms of uh, s- sporting programs? Um, you know, do you have women and men storms and? Men and women's bathrooms and things like that—these are realities that are are really sad. But um, so a school that that actually uh, define what a woman is or a man is—that's um, controversial. It shouldn't be.
2: <laughs> no, it really is. It's sad. Pick a school that is not a spiritual wasteland. I like that number nine. Elaborate a little more about why that's so important in considering all. You know, because so often uh, a school may be strong in academics or some other area, but that's critical, uh, a critical part of it all, isn't
7: it? It's absolutely essential to it, because Scripture says that the fear of the Lord uh, is the beginning of wisdom. Um, So does the school respect the Judeo-Christian tradition? Does it value uh, our our, our civilization's most important book, the Bible? And, you know, let alone, are you—does it believe that Jesus is the light of the world, which uh, we do at CCU. I mean, we're, we're, Jesus is prominent. In a lot of schools, they're Christophobic. You know, they, they're, they're running from that. But that's our spiritual foundation.
2: Coming up, resisting the cultural pressures.
0: It's about recognizing that the world is becoming increasingly proficient about telling stories that deny God.
2: When The Christian Outlook returns in just a moment, stay with us.
1: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
2: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. From Pride Month that we looked at earlier in our program, to pop culture, to politics, it seems like we're being inundated. Even corporate America and the world of finance have become enablers of the agenda of today's radical left-wing ideologues. A number of Christian leaders have tried, let's say, to make peace with the secular and increasingly pagan agenda we're facing. I think we ought to look to Scripture and the admonition from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, where he tells us, do not be conformed to this world. James Spencer is the director of the D.L. Moody Center, located some two hours north of Boston. He's written a book titled, Christian Resistance, Learning to Defy the World and Follow Jesus. He joined
8: Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. Everywhere we look, we're bombarded by Madison Avenue. We are told what we need to think, what we need to do, where we need to go, what we need to buy. All of that so that we can fit in. And if we proclaim ourselves to be Christians and not do anything, well, today it seems like all hell breaks loose. Talk about that because this is a different world that many of us grew up in just a few decades ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that we do at the D.L. Moody Center and a lot about what Christian resistance is really about, it's about recognizing that the world is becoming increasingly proficient about telling stories that deny God. And, you know, everywhere we turn, we're embedded in narratives and hearing stories and getting news uh, reports from a a, a perspective that pushes God to the margins of our world, if not denies Him altogether and so what christians need to really think through is how do we create how do we develop within ourselves a theological perspective on reality so that we can recognize god's active presence in and around us and we don't fall prey to some of the you know fears some of the emergencies some of the catastrophes that the world sees as just you know almost world ending but we can approach those with a calm and stable Sort of demeanor, knowing that we belong to an unshakable kingdom. I, I love Hebrews twelve twenty eight. 28. Um, it talks about being grateful that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And I really believe that Christians need to develop that sort of sense of stability, that uh, fear of the Lord that overcomes all of the things so that we can approach the world with a peace that surpasses understanding.
8: You know, this morning, as I was uh, spending time with the Lord, and one of my readings this morning was from uh, the Gospel of John. And Jesus was speaking about the fact that there were many, and we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but there were many religious leaders, in his own words, that he said believed in him, but they had uh, they they kept it quiet because they didn't want to lose their statue uh, there in the temple, and they didn't want to mm-hmm. face the persecution. It seems like that is what's happening. Even those that we still have the remnant of a Christian faith, many people are not taking their stand many people are not publicly acknowledging him and in the meantime we're being run over because satan knows that many won't speak up talk about that
0: that's right i mean if we look at a different uh, different passage in the gospels i think the one you noted is very relevant but i think there's uh, the parable of the sower in the gospel of luke and what we see there are sort of four different ways that the word can be heard one is taken away by the devil one it never takes root in rocky soil But then the third that falls amongst the weeds, it's choked out by the worries and the wealth of just everyday life. And I think that there is a a reality to that that we've not yet grasped, that we have sort of taken for granted that Christians are designed to grow in the Lord and that there are never going to be any obstacles that would keep us from growing in Christ. But that just simply isn't true. I think there are many Christians today who are going to have some semblance of faith but are going to struggle for that faith to take root because they're so consumed with the things that surround them. You know, in, in, the, in Christian resistance, I talk a good deal about distraction, and I use the Mary and Martha story as an example. Martha is not distracted by anything that's particularly bad. She's distracted with serving. There's nothing wrong with what she's doing. It's not some sort of perverted act that she is performing while Jesus is in the other room. She's just trying to care for the hospitality of the moment. But that hospitality and the in the expectations of the moment distract her from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary is not distracted by those things, and so she gets to benefit from the good portion. And I think that that's a lesson for us today. We need to be choosing the good portion. We need to be setting aside those expectations that we put upon ourselves, that society puts upon us, and really push those out so that we are sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning to serve him so that our faith, you know, just sort of jump back to the parable of the sower, takes root and bears fruit in good soil.
8: Let's talk a little bit about discernment. You know, to have good discernment, You've got to know the Lord. To know the Lord, you've got to spend time with Him. To spend time with Him, you've got to read His Word and then to pray and then to listen. Talk about that because I think many Christians in this resistance that we're going to have to do in the future are going to be handicapped because they're not prepared to have God's discernment.
0: Yeah, I think discernment is developed as we know the Lord, just like you said. And and the way we know the Lord is often a little bit confused. There's been a misnomer about biblical knowledge versus actually knowing the Lord. And so here's the way I would suggest it. You know, we all know what a bicycle is, right? Just we could point to something and say, that is a bike. And we know cognitively that what a bicycle is, we all have a concept of what that bicycle is. Now, whether or not we know how to ride that bicycle is a different sort of knowledge. And so if I go out to my garage and I really need a mode of transportation, but I don't know how to ride a bicycle and I see one hanging there, it's not particularly relevant to me because it can't serve as a mode of transportation. I can know that it's a mode of transportation, but if I don't know how to ride it and I need a mode of transportation, it's basically just an object hanging on the wall to me. I can't use it. I can't I can't engage it in the way that would be actually helpful to me. And because I can't ride it and I don't know how to ride it, and I've never tried to ride it, I also don't have an understanding of what it's like to sort of ride down the street with wind blowing through my hair, to feel my muscles sort of straining as I try to climb up a hill on a bicycle. And that's a sort of knowledge, too. It's a participatory knowledge that we just don't have. And so as I think about that sort of analogy with a bicycle, I would transfer that over to what it's like to live with a knowledge of the Lord. It's possible to know things about the Lord. It's possible to know that God is omnipresent, that god knows everything that god is sovereign but not actually have an understanding of that in an experiential way to understand how to tap into that to have tested that through obedience so that we really understand who god is and and that living with him is an actual way of being in the world that we can experience Coming up... It's not militants, it's not, you know, going out into the streets and ticketing necessarily, but it is about really showcasing who Christ is through the way that we live.
2: More with James Spencer when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
8: Tuning into the baseball game, monitoring the incoming storm, catching your favorite talk show. These are just a few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. And did you know AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times? It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters.
2: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. If you were to pay attention to the media caricatures of what a biblically-minded Christian looks like in this third decade of the 21st century, the picture is not a pretty one. I like the way our guest describes the outworking of biblical faithfulness in our world today. Let's pick up with James Spencer
8: of the D.L. Moody Center talking about Christian resistance with Bill Bunkley. What would you define resistance as we're talking about the Christian response to the world crumbling around us to Satan?
0: Well, I think, you know, when I picture Christian resistance, I usually use the illustration of a dam. Dams have a tremendous pressure of water pushing against them, and the dam and the water are always in contact. But the dam's job is to hold its shape. And I think if we think about Christian resistance as holding our shape, conforming to the image of Christ. And not compromising on that shape, that boundary that we create, where we understand where Christians end and the world begins, that's what I mean by Christian resistance. Mm-hmm. So it's not militants, it's not you know going out into the streets and ticketing necessarily, but it is about really showcasing who Christ is through the way that we live.
8: One last thing, and I want to focus in on discernment. We're getting bombarded with so many things, and I'm reminded, how when the Catholics in the Spanish exploration, particularly down in South America with the Inca and other people groups, instead of bringing in the gospel from the Catholic persuasion, they uh, adopted a, well, keep your local religion to all of your gods, but add the Catholic faith on top of it. You know, aren't we doing the same thing here in America, though many of us would not want to admit it because we are exercising very poor discernment?
0: Yeah, I think there's a sense in which that's very true. I think there is a, a, a way of understanding Christianity in America that merges the two too closely. And what I would advocate for is we need to reserve Christian for anything that makes Christ essential. And our nation doesn't do that, and it, it really never has. And so as we discern as Christians, what we need to be looking at is how is it that we can be all things to all people that we might save some? And I'm convinced that if we sort of approach the world and, and some of the big questions that we keep asking from that logic, we will get very different answers and I think more faithful answers than we will if we go at certain problems and say, how do we solve you know the debt ceiling question? How do we solve the you know, sex trafficking question? You know, Some of these things as we're interacting with political and, and sort of social problems within our culture, we just have to remember that our role as Christians, is to proclaim the gospel to a world that is lost. And I don't think we do that well when we approach it from one political perspective or another. We have to be just cognizant that what our job is, is to be all things to all people that we might save some. I don't think that that eliminates the political part of the equation at all. I think it's appropriate for Christians to participate in politics, but we need to remember that our primary responsibility, and we are the only people who can do this, is to proclaim Christ to a broken world.
2: That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producer David Pouchon, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.